Are you looking for your next podcast binge to lose yourself in? Let me introduce you to a story that begins with sweet romance but quickly turns into betrayal and the far-reaching consequences of one man's deceit. It's an account told by the women whose lives were forever changed by it. You probably think The Stories About You is a podcast hosted by Brittany Art. And it's not just another podcast. It's an exploration of self-discovery, growth, resilience, and healing. And it's all told in a unique format. And this is why I'm so excited about this one. This is Brittany's story, but she doesn't just host it like a podcast in the traditional sense. Through immersive soundscapes and the voices of the women affected by these events, this podcast creates such a unique experience experience that's going to make your headphones glow in the dark. I can't wait to get started and I hope you'll join me. Listen and follow. You'll probably think the stories about you wherever you listen to podcasts. So first you have this morally injurious event which violates your values in some kind of profound and deep way. We would argue that a natural and expected consequence of you having your values violated is the experience of what we call moral pain. Moral pain refers to the uncomfortable, uh, dysphoric emotions, uh, thoughts, sensations, urges that accompany the violations of your values. We don't pathologize moral emotions or cognitions. We don't try to reduce guilt or shame that someone experiences. It, it is not about that at all. It is about cultivating willingness to experience those emotions for the sake of what matters to you. Cultivating willingness to kind of step outside of a thought or step outside of a story, right? That was Dr. Jake Farnsworth and Dr. Lauren Borges on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists committed to cutting-edge, integrative, and evidence-based strategies for living well. On this podcast, we bring you ideas from psychology that can help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health. I am Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. We hope this podcast offers you ideas for how to live a full and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Hi, everybody. We have some great events coming up in the new year we want to tell you about. I'm going to be in Santa Barbara at Yoga Soup presenting a workshop on committed action. So if you have a change you want to make in the new year and you want to do it in a way that is sustainable and values-based, meet me at Yoga Soup on January 5th from 2.30 to 5. And if you sign up before December 20th, you'll get a discounted rate. You can find out more information at yogasoup.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you enjoyed episode 102 with Dr. Stephen Hayes, who is the co-founder of ACT and wrote A Liberated Mind, we are having an online question and answer session about A, li a Liberated Mind. It's a great chance to talk to Steve Hayes directly, ask him questions, and listen to him talk about the book. That's happening on Tuesday, January 7th at 9 a.m. Mountain Time. So do the math on the time zones if you need to. And you can go to www.impactpsychcolorado.com for details about how to join us live. And if you are a mental health professional and identify as a woman, please come to Boulder, Colorado on March 7th. I'm doing a professional development workshop with Dr. Meg McKelvey. You know, as women in mental health professions, we 
have a lot to balance and we could get really depleted sometimes. And this workshop is about tuning into our professional values, recharging our batteries and coming together to support one another in our professional and personal growth. And we really welcome everyone from students in graduate school to seasoned mental health professionals to join us. It's going to be a wonderful event. And so also for that, just go to Impact Psychology colorado.com for more information. We have links to all of these events on our website, offtheclockpsych.com. Check it out. I'm bringing you an episode about moral injury and shame. And to me, this is a pretty cutting edge new area that I've been learning about. As a clinician, I think it's very helpful to think about shame. It gets overlooked a lot with clients. And often when people have done things in the past that violate their own moral code that can get really deep into shame and moral injury. And in this episode, Lauren and Jake talk about how moral injury is really tied to these moral emotions that people have, and we have them for good reasons. And it can be really problematic for people when they are in shame and they get stuck there and they they might do things that are problematic in their lives. And I have to say as a clinician, now that I know a little bit about this, I've started to pick it up occasionally in my clinical work clinical work where I might not have before. I'll be sitting with someone and they'll be talking and I'll be like, oh, you know what? This is moral injury. And I think just having the awareness of it and also recognizing the emotional and social impact it has it can have on people has been really helpful for me as a clinician to know about. Mm-hmm. The episode really focuses on more extreme cases, and that makes sense, like uh, combat situations. The researchers that, were, that you talk to, Debbie, you work at the VA and have um, met with people that have seen and done really, really hard things in their lives. But there's also ways in which moral injury and shame shows up, I think, for many of us. And I've, uh, I've seen it in my practice as well. Some of the, the places where I've seen it have been things like in relationships where one partner maybe has had an extramarital affair and they harbor so much uh, guilt and remorse about it that it can actually get in the way of them moving forward in, in, in the repair of that affair. Another place that I've seen it a lot is in the uh, addictions, um, certainly with eating disorders where uh, people feel so uh, upset with themselves about things that they did while using their eating disorder or while in their addiction that it actually leads to the cycle of more addiction because you use the addiction to try and um, mitigate the feelings that you have around it. And I think that What's interesting about their approach is that it's not about trying to cajole the client or your friend or whoever else may be coming to you with a moral injury. It's not about telling them they shouldn't feel bad about what they did because actually the feeling bad about what you did links to your values and what you care about. And there's a reason why you feel so intensely about this and why it's gotten so stuck for you. Yeah. I'll I'll add another area that I've heard people talk about moral injury a lot, which and and they actually allude to this a bit in the episode, which is about physician stress and burnout. I don't know if you've heard about this, but physicians and health care workers um, are experiencing really high rates of stress and burnout. And they work in systems often where they make really hard decisions. Sometimes they have a lot of moral responsibility to make the right decision, potentially save lives or not. And sometimes they're actually not even able to work at the highest standards of their professions because of all the pressure that they're under. For instance, we talked to Cynthia Lee recently about how having the time to really get to know your patients well is really important and provides the best care, but sometimes that's just not possible. And so there are some people, um, Wendy Dean and Simon Talbot are leaders in this, who are really saying that physician burnout phenomenon is actually really a moral injury issue. Mm. It's not so much, you know, just they're stressed and tired. It's that they are at some sort of moral um, crossroads with their work that's making it very difficult to keep doing it. I can totally relate to that, Debbie, and when working with a suicidal client mm-hmm. or having a client that attempts suicide and how it, that, that therapists could feel like that, that they've committed a moral injury if their client attempts or if their client becomes uh, very suicidal because you're at, again, like at this crossroads of what can you do 
to help this person? And did you take the wrong road? Like, did you do the wrong thing? Did you, should you have hospitalized them that day, but then you let them go? And we've talked about that in cases that, um, you know, we've consulted on together, Debbie. Yeah. I mean, the first thing that crosses your mind, you care about the person and you, you want to help them and you're thinking, could I have done more? Yeah. And I think it's a lot of moral weight that we put on ourselves to take mm-hmm. responsibility for people in that way. Yeah. Yeah. So this episode, I think, will be so helpful for many of us uh, in terms of what to do when we're at that crossroads and when we experience a moral injury. Yes. Let me introduce Lauren and Jake. Lauren Borges is a clinical research psychologist in the Rocky Mountain MIREC, which is a VA research center. She's doing some really exciting research on moral injury, especially ACT for moral injury. And she looks at other contextual behavioral approaches to intervening on difficulty responding to shame. Jake Farnsworth is a clinical psychologist at the VA Eastern Colorado Healthcare System. In He's a, a substance use and PTSD specialist providing clinical services to people who have co-occurring PTSD and substance use. And Lauren and Jake also have been collaborating with a team and they wanted to acknowledge their team that they work with. Uh, Robin Walzer, Kent Drescher, Sean Barnes, Wyatt Evans, Lisa Brenner, Jason Newsma, Joe Courier, and Craig Rosen. So thanks to all who are doing research in this important area. We'll link to some of their articles and publications on the show notes for today's episode. Yeah, it takes a team to do this type of work. And I know all those people were major contributors to what they're talking about today. Yes. So let's start with the basics. What do we mean by moral injury? What is it? Yeah, so this is a, gr- a great question. So the idea that there's moral distress, you know, associated with traumatic events is, is certainly not a new idea. That has been around for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. What is more new is that, and since 2009, when the seminal article by Brett Litz was published, moral injury has kind of been given a name and a research kind of thrust behind it. So. Since 2009, when that seminal paper came out, a number of different people have tried to kind of provide definitions and clarify what we mean by this thing called moral injury. And Lauren and I and our research team are no exceptions to that. So we we have our own perspective of what that is. We would break moral injury down into three key parts. Okay, The first part is a morally injurious event or a morally injurious experience. Uh, This is a situation that takes place in a high stakes context and involves the violation of core beliefs, moral beliefs, or values, okay? So thus far, the primary amount, the, the primary area where this has been researched in is in military contexts. But um, as it's kind of continuing to kind of, ex- the contract is continuing to evolve and grow, it's quickly being seen how this can apply to other domains as well, which we'll talk about more in a little bit. Um, so if um, someone uh, does something unfair, we feel anger, right? If someone does some, if I do something that violates my own values, I might feel guilt or I might feel shame. And so just like if you get cut, right, pain is the natural and expected response of your body responding to that injury. In the same way, if we have a morally injurious event, we would expect there to be pain. If we're not feeling pain, that actually is a, is a, a bigger problem in, in a lot of ways, right? So... Um, what we would term moral injury then is not the pain itself, but rather the individual's ineffective, unworkable, or costly attempts to kind of control, manage, or solve the pain so to make it go away. So um, that can happen in a lot of different ways, but you know, we think about social isolation, we think about substance use, alcohol, um, working, distractions. There's, there's a whole multitude of ways in which an individual might try to avoid that pain, but end up making that pain actually get worse. So to break it down, so the morally injurious event is the experience itself. The moral pain would be like the consequence, the, the natural consequence from that event. And the moral injury would be the ineffective strategies that try to we try to use to get away from the pain, but that are either costly or ineffective. Okay, so it's not just the event itself. It's the it's sort of the aftermath in terms of moral injury to the person in terms of effectively responding. Yeah, in the same way we might separate like a traumatic event and PTSD, uh, we okay. would separate a morally injurious event from a moral injury, which is the response okay. to that. 
So then, so when a person has had this history of doing something that's against their own moral co code or sort of a moral injury event, as you say, how does that tend to, what does that look like later? Like, how do you see people struggling down the road when that's the case? It depends a lot on the nature of the morally injurious event. And I probably should have said a second earlier that the MIEs, morally injurious events, can happen in different ways. So, for example, um, you could have um, someone betray you, right? So you haven't done anything wrong, but someone else betrays your trust. And so we would expect that like, anger would be a really pro uh, natural emotion to, to flow from that. Um, or you could see, you know, one person act out against another person in a way that betrayed your values. So you just witnessed it. And you might feel contempt or disgust by witnessing that happening. Now, if you were the party that through your own choices betrayed your values, you might be more likely to experience guilt or shame. So... It depends a little bit about the constellation and the factors of the morally injurious event itself and what the moral injury will look like. But oftentimes what we see, I think, across the board would be kind of this overarching social disconnection, right? Morality is inherently social. And so when a person feels guilt or shame, they often feel like they don't deserve to be there. They don't deserve to be happy. So they might pull away. If they feel like the world or people important to them have betrayed them, they might um, push back, right? Or push against those people. And... and kind of disconnect in that way. Um, we also see from people experiencing like a loss of empathy um, when they have their morality betrayed, especially if it's in a routine kind of consistent way that happens over and over and over again, maybe as part of their job, they just build up these layers of numbness and, and distancing. And so and, and in some cases, people even kind of lose a sense of um, moral bearing and they might have a sense of moral disillusionment that there mm. really is no such thing as right and wrong. And it makes it very hard for them to integrate then into our society, which has this kind of ideas about what is acceptable, what's not acceptable. Um, and oftentimes, of course, spiritual or religious concerns can um, be wrapped into that as well. And then kind of going along with our, our definition of moral injury, I think the other thing that I would say in addition to social disconnection is the kind of the negative effects of the coping strategies. So you might not actually see the moral injury itself playing out, but what you might see is really heavy alcohol use or drug use or... Um, isolation, working a lot, like these kind of things that the person is cope, trying to use to cope with their interna internal experience of pain is what actually might rise to the surface more. Mm. Multiple suicide attempts. Yeah. Um, that's something we, we see often too associated with moral injury. And there's a lot of literature coming out that's um, starting to support the relationship between moral injury and suicide. Yeah. Wow. So there's a lot of different ways that that, that shows up. Yeah. Yeah. So you both work with veterans and talked earlier about how military, this often happens in a military context. And I think people could imagine things, ways in which that might show up in combat situations or different atrocities. What are some other ways, or can you give some examples of types of moral injury people might experience? Yeah, absolutely. So I think I, I want to highlight a couple things Jake said related to war zone veterans first, because I, I think they're important. And then we'll kind of expand a little bit to, to outside of a military veteran population. There are There's actually a whole intervention dedicated to the impact of killing, which I, I think is really interesting. Interesting. So that's a morally injurious event that we that we see often in the people we work with. And I wanted to highlight something else you said about, because I think this is often something that we sometimes don't think about as a morally injurious event, um, an act of omission. Yeah. Uh, so something where um, I'm witnessing an atrocity or I'm witnessing something that I don't believe is inconsistent, that I believe is inconsistent with my values and should not be happening, but I don't intervene, right? So kind of objectively, it looks like you did everything you should have done. Like you behaved exactly as you should have behaved, and yet you violated your values by not acting. And that's something that we've both um, seen a lot in our groups and in some of our individual work, just witnessing um, atrocities. And I I think that that piece really applies to civilian populations too. Um, I think if, if you think about something like witnessing a motor vehicle accident and not being able to intervene, mm -hmm. seeing death associated with that, um, being involved in a natural disaster and not being able to help other people and, and save the lives of other people. There's an example that we use in some of our like workshops and um, clinical presentations with a client that one of us worked with who um, was so heavily using substances that his uh, children were sexually victimized as a result, which is a, another example of a, of a morally injurious event that certainly doesn't stem from war, but is very obviously um, shame evoking and, and getting caught up inside of, of that story definitely affected this individual's functioning. Um, 
I think we, we've also had some people in our group who um, have morally injurious events from prison. So yeah. something like a gang initiation or just behavior that I had to engage in in prison for the purposes of survival. And now that I'm outside of that, like, how do I, and, and I think this is an important piece, like, how do I um, kind of hold these two behaving uh related to two different value systems, right? So if I'm if I'm over in war and I have to like subsume kind of the value system of the military and then I come back and now I'm faced with all these cues of, of what I care about in my community, like how do I hold those two things at the same time? And I think that's that's true for um, people who are uh, in prison and, and other contexts as well. If yeah, I could add please. also, so another area where moral injury is really being explored right now is like um, with physicians, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. people in the ICU who have to make really split second decisions that will impact these patients' lives forever, whether to amputate a limb um, or make other kind of critical life or death decisions. Um, same is true for first responders, mm -hmm. paramedics, Absolutely. firefighters, police officers, who um, police officers in particular because they have the potential to use lethal force. but. But also paramedics who have to kind of make decisions about um, who gets treatment first um, and um, inability to kind of render necessary aid sometimes. Um, or I th there's also been some exposure to like, um, or some exploration of people exposed to child sexual abuse, like um, uh, child protective services, and going into these situations over and over, we have vulnerable populations um, being exposed to kind of. Uh, inhumane or abusive context, but not necessarily be able to do anything legally. Hmm. So, so there's a lot of kind of interesting exploration right now about how far the moral injury construct can and, and should be extended. And that's kind of a, a nebulous area right now. Yeah, I think a lot of different people are doing work in this area yeah. and, and the measures that we use to, to kind of um, identify exposure to different kinds of morally injurious events were normed and developed explicitly for war zone veterans. Yeah. But there are other investigators um, that are looking at this in other populations. So I think the next um, 10 years will be really interesting for this field. Do you think that people know that they're doing something morally wrong while it's happening or while they're doing it or can it sometimes be retrospective like they don't really realize it's a problem at the time and it's only later yeah yeah it happens in lots of different ways um so um there are some qualitative research that suggests like that some people know in the moment like in the moment it just hits them in that way and they realize this is wrong but either because they choose not to or they're unable to um the, the event still happens so, so certainly that occurs, but there are other cases that we see both in our anecdotally in our clinical practice, um, where individuals at the time thought that their actions maybe were justified or that what was happening is what should have happened. But then afterwards, maybe, especially as Lauren said, when they change context, like, so for example, um, service members, oftentimes these events happen overseas in war zones. And um, there's an entire culture there. There's a set of SOPs and rules of engagement. And um, what we know as, as humans is that we're highly influenced by our environments, right? So when a person is in that kind of social context where they're, maybe they they're, uh, don't have much time, where their life is on the line, it can stoke a lot of moral emotions mm -hmm. um, that can uh, make us more inclined to make moral decisions that we otherwise wouldn't do. And it's not until the individual comes back like into the civilian sector and has some time and some distance from the event to really consider what was happening uh, that sometimes they, re they recognize, wait a minute, like who was, I, I was someone else over there. And oftentimes, I like, think narratively, we get this sense of I was a different person in that situation. And it, it, I'd even say that goes the same for some people in the midst of their addiction, right? Like it feels like it was a different person who was doing things and yet it's still me, you know, with same name, same, same uh, a social security number. And so how do I reconcile that? That I was this different person and did these things that now I find maybe wrong or reprehensible, right? Or that I was, uh, in some way, even uh, a part of it. So I think sometimes um, with veterans, especially as they come back, they look maybe um, at the broader kind of political uh, context of our recent military engagements and maybe start to question what was that for and is it, was that really the reason why I was thought I was going over there to begin with. And so sometimes that can also create a sense of kind of disillusionment that what, what I signed up for is not really what I was enrolled, right, it's involved in doing. more complicated than some of the, you know, like World War II, where people had this clear sense of, like, we're doing this for a 
very yeah. clear moral reason. Some more recent engagements, Vietnam and some Middle Eastern, it's less clear yeah. why, what they're doing and why. And that, that yeah. increases the complexity. And, and um, e- even in World War II, there are some, we didn't have the term moral injury, but there are certainly some writings in terms of one of the things we didn't point out is that mm-hmm. moral injury can also come just from observing inc- intense human suffering, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so that, that's another way, I would say, and, and certainly, um, you know, acts of atrocity and inhumanity happened. Absolutely. In, in, in any war, right? Yeah. Throughout, 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 <laughs> yes. our, throughout time as a human species, yeah. right? That's been, a, that's been a part of our heritage as well. Yeah. And that was a pretty U.S.-centric thing I just said, because if you were in <laughs> yeah. Germany, yeah, that's a different totally. thing, right? Absolutely. So it, I was talking to one of my podcast co-hosts, um, Diana, recently about this interview, and we were we were in the car together, and we started talking about things we've done that we feel guilty mm. about, like smaller scale things. Do you think... Those so things like, for instance, you're not paying attention on the road and you hurt someone, or you're as a parent, like you know, when you yell at your kids, even right. though you don't think that's a good idea. Like, do you think that there's degrees of moral injury events? Yeah, yeah. So that's a it's a great question. Like, do we all have them, or is <laughs> yeah. this its own so, thing? So, yeah, we um, so and we think about this. This actually uh, is an important question because um, moral injury is kind of an intuitive concept. Right. And so when people hear it, like when I, when I talk about PTSD with people, they're like, what's that? You know, like they've heard of this thing, but they don't really get it. When I say moral injury, everyone immediately goes, bingo. Like, I, right. I know what that is. I've done things too. Uh, right? I know. Well, I like, how, yeah. How do you know? Right? How, how, how did you find out? Right. I think just like the weight of the term mor- moral yeah, morality, yeah. like what is that in an equivalence class with? Mm. It elicits so much yeah. about me, the world. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, yeah. so I think, so one piece to recognize that morality is a fundamental part of our human experience. Right, like as social beings, we have to have a way to kind of know how to treat each other, yeah. and that, that's kind of really where morality lives. And so we've all had moral experiences. We would all, I would say, based on our definition, we've all experienced moral pain. Now, um, if I could maybe use a, a parallel to kind of help us understand, you know, your question though. So um, we think about PTSD. Um, have you ever had a nightmare before? Right. Yes. You've had a nightmare, right? I've had a nightmare. We've all had a, a, at least one nightmare in our life. Have you ever felt maybe a little on guard or edgy because of the situation you were in? Sure. Probably, yep. right? Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever not done something because of how it was going to make you feel? Right. You know, and so of course we've, we've all done, if we look at the symptoms of PTSD, we, separately we could all probably resonate with them a little bit too, right? And statistically everybody, not everybody, but the majority of people in um, the U.S. at least have experienced at least one traumatic event at some time in their life, right? So what makes the difference then between someone who's experienced those things and someone who has the diagnosis of PTSD? Well, um, I would say one is the number of symptoms that you're experiencing, the intensity of those symptoms and duration and the functional impairment, right? Mm -hmm. So just because like I've experienced a nightmare doesn't mean I have PTSD. So one of the things that's important is look at the the severity of what we're seeing here in a, in a clinical sense. I think another piece to look at is kind of the functional relationship, right? So um, maybe we've all done things that you know live kind of came short of our values, right? What was the effect of that, right? Like so when we're talking about moral injury, first of all, we're talking about a high stakes environment. We're not we're not talking about like getting a parking ticket. Right, we're talking. We're talking. We're talking about things that kind of fundamentally altered the course of people's lives. Okay. Right, where, where lives were lost or um, had kind of serious implications for people's quality of life long term. And then the other piece we're saying is, when we're looking at functional impairment, we're looking at kind of pervasive, significant impacts on people's ability to connect with what they value most. So, for for one example, like there was one individual who um, really, uh, you know, lost the ability to feel love for his family that we worked with. And even though he, he was holding down a job, right? But he was, in, he was a military veteran and he was involved in, um, for his count, due to his job, like hundreds of deaths, of civilian deaths overseas. And um, it was all according to rules of engagement, but it was kind of part of that ominous term collateral damage. And um, he really lost this sense. He started seeing people in terms of numbers and he brought that home with mm-hmm. them. So he could saw his own family as numbers and he couldn't break out of that. Right, so that that goes beyond a sense of like, oh man, I really shouldn't have done that. Like this is much more pervasive, intense, and functionally impairing when we're thinking of the construct of moral injury. 
And I think that's something that can go along with that and something we really target in treatment. We'll talk a little bit about act for moral injury later. Um, is this perspective shift that can happen or, or kind of if I have this perspective already and I experience these morally injurious events, it can just become ingrained even more so that, that really individuals kind of get caught up in, um, stories about themselves related to what happened in, in a way that, um, is, is so kind of debilitating and paralyzing that I'm kind of trapped inside of that story now. We'll kind of go more into that in a second. So it's become like a really big thing yeah. in their life. It's really impairing. It's all I so can see. Those minor things that we all experience yeah. are just at kind of like a much, much lower level. Yeah, it's all yeah. become taking like a central role. Like yeah. in, in yeah. trauma studies, there's this idea of event centrality. That like this event yeah. now becomes like the center node of my life. Yeah. And everything yeah. revolves around it. It's like the hinge upon yep. which my life turns. And, and for many people, when they have experienced a severe morally injurious event, it's like that. It's like this is the kind of the fulcrum upon which my life is turning out. Yeah, well, it takes over. Yeah. yeah. So we've been talking about PTSD, and we've talked about moral injury, which seems like they often go hand in hand. What's the difference between the two? Yeah, so they are they are highly correlated, and the research is saying that they happen together. And this is an area of active kind of discussion right now. Um, and so um, what we'll share today is kind of some our thoughts about why the construct of moral injury maybe doesn't fit so well with PTSD. So I'd say there's, there's four main reasons. Um, so one is that PTSD is a DSM diagnosis, which means by definition, it's a sign of pathology, right? That something has gone wrong and we expect, like sometimes we talk about PTSD as a failure to recover, that we would expect people to kind of be able to bounce back from these events, maybe sometimes with some help, um, but we would expect there to be a natural recovery. Now, when we think about a morally injurious um, event and the moral pain that a person experiences from that, as I said earlier, you know, if, if you get a cut, we expect you to feel pain. That, that actually means that something's working right. Even though it's uncomfortable, mm -hmm. even though it's hard, like what, what maybe colloquially we would refer to as a conscience, right? We think that serves an important function for the person mm -hmm. to be able to kind of recognize when their values have been violated. So for that, like I worked with one um, client um, and I diagnosed him with PTSD and, and he met the criteria, but what he actually said to me when I gave him the diagnosis, he rejected it. He says, no, I, I will not accept the diagnosis of PTSD. And he explained, I, I don't have PTSD, I have a conscience. Which was a really powerful impact for me, you know, to realize like, wait a minute, like I've been medicalizing this thing that this person actually sees as, a, as an ethical issue. Mm. And so that's one reason why we think it's important that, pe that moral injury not be classified as a DSM diagnosis. Because we don't want to pathologize conscience or, right. or, or it's a, a sense of values. It's a good thing that people have a sense of morality and a conscience. Right, yeah. and, and that we feel bad when bad things happen. Like that, yeah. That's actually a good thing. So, um, so that's one way it's different than PTSD. Another is that... Um, in order to have a PTSD diagnosis, you need to have what's called a criterion A trauma. And that involves, by definition, um, serious injury, loss of life, or sexual violence. Because those are the only kind of th three things that will meet that criteria. And you can have a morally injurious event that doesn't involve those things. Like I had one client who, for his job, had to bulldoze houses of people who were very poor. So they'd be standing on the side of the road while he just demolished their entire life and livelihood in order to make way for this convoy. And, and so no one was in danger, no one lost their life, there was no sexual violence. So it doesn't count as a criterion A trauma mm. per PTSD's definition. And yet that stuck with him for years and years and years. So that's another reason why moral injury doesn't necessarily fit the criteria for PTSD. Um, another one is that um, PTSD is largely still a fear-based diagnosis in the latest DSM has been pulled out of the anxiety disorders. But you see a lot of the vestiges still there in terms of hypervigilance, startle reflexes, other things like that. So um, it's still largely a fear-based diagnosis, and moral injury clearly is about guilt, shame, anger, and, and other moral emotions and experiences. And the last one um, that I would say that is important is really clear implications for treatment, is that um, PTSD, in order to have um, your thoughts be associated with PTSD or fall under that umbrella, they need to be distorted or exaggerated. That's just a part is written into the actual definition of the criteria. Um, in order for something to be distorted or exaggerated, you have to be able to prove that it's inaccurate, right? You have to be able to show like with objective evidence that this is why it's not accurate. And we do that in PTSD treatment. And that's like people might say it's dangerous outside and say, well, let's, how often are there bombs going off? Like how often are there shootings? And it feels like a lot until you actually do the numbers. And actually we live in a very safe part of the world. 
So, on, in contrast, you know, PTSD is about is about what is. Um, moral injury is about what ought to be. And so, for example, a person could say, you know, I know um, that there were reasons why, you know, what happened happened, but I still feel like I should have done something. Like we have people who um, will maybe saw like a rape happening and they were ordered not to do anything, right? So there was this clear like command, no, don't do anything. And maybe they complied with that order, but now in retrospect, they think I should have done something, right? Like I should have taken action. So moral injury and moral values are really about what ought to be, not necessarily what is, right? And there's a discrepancy between those two. So, um, and you can't prove a, an ought to be accurate or inaccurate. That's right. It's, it's, right? it's, it's very subjective. It's a value. Yeah. 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 So, so we, so for that reason, by definition, we would argue that moral injury does not fall within the criteria for PTSD. And when you're focusing on what is right, like you did everything you should have done, you're not kind of targeting how someone's relating to their to their guilt and shame. <laughs> you're you're targeting you're targeting something else. So I I think um, Jake's point about uh, PTSD uh, being characterized for a really long time as an anxiety disorder is uh, really important in thinking about how interventions, how EBPs for PTSD were set up, um, and kind of set up with that conceptualization in mind, which certainly doesn't mean that they don't target guilt and shame, um, we, we would argue that our intervention primarily targets um, how individuals are relating to guilt and shame right. and other moral emotions. Right. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, speaking of guilt and yeah, shame and moral emotions, you do talk about um, shame as a moral emotion that has a purpose. Can you tell us about why humans yeah. have shame? Yeah. So I think there are there are a couple different levels here that are important to consider. I think I think the first is evolutionarily why we have shame. Um, shame is an emotion that actually motivates incredibly effective behavior for the purposes of human survival, right? If I consume too many of the group's resources, I should feel shame in response to that because that will temporarily remove me kind of from the tribe, from the from the bigger picture, which is which is really important if we're thinking about kind of the greater good and the collective sort of staying intact. And there's um, some cool research that uh, that kind of relates shame to the social social safety system. Um, so, so I think I think part of this is like humans are hardwired really to be socially connected. And so that kind of the other side of that is, well, what do I do? What what happens when I do something um, that is uh, socially not acceptable? I feel shame as a consequence. And and we actually argue that that you should embrace that, right? So 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 embracing shame and moving with shame for the sake of what I care about is critical. Um, in, in the way that we approach shame clinically. But unfortunately, that's not the message that we get in our culture. That's not the message that we get in mental health care. I, I would actually argue as a whole, shame is pathologized. It's something that you shouldn't have. It's something that we we try and work to reduce, um, which which I, I think is not is not kind of harnessing the power of what this emotion is yeah. and and um, how it how it functions to keep us together. So I, I think that's kind of the importance of considering shame at the level of the group. And then I think we get into shame at the level of the individual. And what does that mean? So if we know that evolutionarily, we should have this experience, and this experience keeps us connected and motivates pro-social behavior. Um, if we think about it at the level of the individual, it's really interesting because, um, so now I have this emotion of shame, of course I do, because I'm human, but then it's wrapped up verbally in all my own crap, all my own, all my own content, all my own rules about what people should and shouldn't be like, what I have done, my own stories about my experience. And I think that's interesting, because that's kind of how 
how we see it playing out with our clients. We're caught up in these um, in these stories about ourselves related to these emotions. And I, and I, and I think then what can happen in the therapy room, right? If I'm a client that's experiencing really profound shame is for you sitting across from me as the therapist, that's incredibly aversive <laughs> to, to be in the mm-hmm. presence of yeah. that's incredibly uncomfortable because shame is a signal for disconnection. So we actually want to move away from that. We don't want to, we don't want to embrace that often as a, as a therapist sitting in, in a room with our client in pain. We want to, we want to stop the pain. We want to, we want to do whatever we can to avoid that or to kind of disengage from that, which is really problematic. Um, I, I think, I think one of the things that we talk about, in the context of our work together, and this is something we have in common a little bit with our ODBT, is uh, thinking about what we're doing in in the room to to be open to the experiences that our clients are having. How are we actually physically positioning ourselves to um, to embrace and and facilitate whatever whatever's happening, rather than kind of punishing it and and putting it on extinction or or switching topics because we're not comfortable talking about it. We actually um, just got a paper accepted for publication that I think speaks to this nicely, and um, we'll send you the link for it. But it was this qualitative study on veterans who had completed evidence-based psychotherapy for PTSD, and kind of some of the barriers to talking about moral injury in the context of that treatment. And one veteran shared, um, you know, I just got the feeling in the air that my my therapist didn't want to talk about this with me. Like I wanted to go more into depth related to this thing, but she didn't want to go there. So I think oftentimes we're we're just conditioned to kind of um, recoil from these experiences and that in and of itself can be really problematic. And I, I would even say that a lot of our, you touched on this, but if I could expand on it, even our training as psychologists, yeah. which often teaches us that shame and guilt are pathological, that they're, in, in major depression, guilt is actually a sign of depression, right? Um, and that um, I, there was an article that called shame toxic, right? And some other kind of maybe some prominent um, voices for vulnerability and the importance of that. You know, which is good, but we often demonize shame, right? But imagine a world without shame and imagine like what people's conduct would be like. Um, shame is a powerful motivator, right? And it helps kind of us realize maybe when we could be better and more, maybe we're closely aligned with our values. In, in ACT, which is the approach that Lauren and I kind of work from with moral injury, there's a saying that where there is values, there's pain and where there's pain, there's values. And so we really lean and leverage that heavily in our groups that if you feel shame, it means that actually that you really value honor, that, that there's something really important to you here and that your body, your, your, your mind is telling you that you crossed a line and that's good because that means that you can kind of adjust your behavior going forward. So it's really hard to think about like uh, this is a gift, but if we have shame, just like we have fear and all these other really uncomfortable emotions, they serve a purpose. And we need to be able to listen to them. And, you know, as psychologists, maybe even back off some of our pathologization (laughs) of uh, these experiences, which actually really serve really important functions for us. Right. We can learn from it if we pay attention to, to it in the right way. And if as therapists, instead of like shutting it down or trying to fix it, we are open to it maybe something really important could happen. And I think like, if you think about like the micro mimicry stuff that happens, like when my client expresses shame, I'm going to start feeling shame, right? And I'm going to disengage from it. So I think a, a really important thing to kind clinician of... Clinician avoidance, yeah, right? Yeah, no, clinician. slow down and, and think about is like, I, as Jake was saying, shame is a signal that you actually care, that you care about relationships. So like, I, I think for us, we've really focused on, okay, let's slow down yeah. and notice what it is that's coming up for us and, and use that as a signal as providers to pursue our values in therapy with, in the context of whatever is coming with it. Well, and one of the most powerful things that can happen, I think, is when someone does open up about something that mm, they've yeah. been holding really tight inside because they're so ashamed. Yeah. But if they can open up to it and take a look at it and share it with somebody like that can be huge. Absolutely. So important. Yeah. And it's, and it's incredibly vulnerable. So we want to reinforce that rather than unintentionally do things. And not, yeah. not blame the shame, right? Yeah. But blame the right. avoidance, blame, yeah. blame like maybe some of the rigid rules and kind of ideas that the person is maybe holding on to. I think blame the verbal repertoire related to the shame. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's, okay. it's not the shame itself. It's like, you know, if, if you got an infection, don't, don't blame the cut. Like don't don't blame like the pain you're experiencing. Like blame how you're treating that cut and what yeah. you're doing with it that's preventing it from healing. Right. 
Like if you're sitting in a room all day, totally disengaged from your life because of the shame, that's a problem. Right. Mm -hmm. But the fact that you have shame really just shows that you're human. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you care. Yeah. Yeah. Lauren, you recently published a case example, and I've heard you present at conferences (laughs) about this case. Um, And we can link to the publication that goes with it on our website. But I was wondering if just as an example, because I think examples are so helpful. Could you kind of briefly walk us through the case that you published? Absolutely. I actually, I'm really uh, feel fortunate to do that because I think this gives us a really nice um, kind of story to tell about our intervention and and allows us to um, identify the parts of act for moral injury in a, in a real kind of visceral way, which I think is better than us just taking apart, you know, the, the different pieces of act am I. So, so I, I think this will be nice. Um, Yeah. So I, so in the MIREC, we, um, we are often referred veterans who are incredibly suicidal because we focus on suicide research. And um, I had the opportunity to work with a service member who had multiple suicide attempts had just finished the PTSD residential program. Um, and he did a MIRAC consultation with us. And in the, in the context of that consultation, his provider really figured out like those consultations are set up to understand what's driving risk for suicide. Why someone, why this individual had multiple suicide attempts, why he was kind of stuck inside of suicidal ideation, what was going on. And, and they figured out that the function of, um, of him thinking about suicide and him engaging in suicidal behavior was to avoid shame, um, which was directly related to uh, moral injuries events he experienced while deployed. So it became very clear that to target his suicidal behavior, we had to target his moral injury. Um, so then I was referred to work with him and he his morally injurious event. He um, uh, basically his job was to collect um information on on high-ranking members of the Taliban and um, use that information eventually to take their lives. So he um, was responsible or believed he was responsible for the deaths of men, women, children of of several people. Um, And I I think what's really interesting about that morally injurious event is in the context of working so closely with these people, he learned just that, that they were humans um, and and developed relationships with them outside of just you're the enemy because unfortunately, (laughs) unfortunately, we can't compartmentalize like that we shouldn't actually um and and so he he would actually describe that he developed friendships with a a lot of the people that ultimately um he ended up being responsible for their deaths which is just like incredibly um emotionally complex to have have all of those things happening at the same time and he said um kind of his primary like uh motivation for treatment was just based on his suffering and that he didn't deserve to be loved because of the things that he had done. It was that visceral and, um, so sad. Yeah. Yeah. And intense for him. Um, and, and so our work together really, um, centered around clarifying his values first, figuring out now that these things you've experienced these things, what is it that you care about? How do we, how do we, um, how do we start to take steps towards that? And what do we need to do to take steps towards that. And I think that was the biggest piece because to to pursue what mattered to him, his relationships mattered to him. We'll talk about spirituality in a second, um, which I think is a, a particularly interesting piece of this case study and our work and, and act for moral injury in general. Um, but to be able to pursue relationships, to be able to like have a meaningful relationship with his kid, he's going to be put in contact with intense shame because he took the lives of children, right? So um, to be able to pursue what mattered to him, he had to be willing to experience emotional pain. So I think that was um, in clarifying his values, what went kind of hand in hand with that was was willingness to, to try something different, willingness to let go of um, getting caught up in suicide, to let go of overworking. He just kind of completely consumed himself in his job, um, to let go of all these things that, that hadn't served him uh, to get him closer to what he wanted. And and so um, we did that together. And he was uh, he's someone I will always remember as, as far as um, uh, just a, a really meaningful guy to work with. He was, um, so So we worked towards clarifying values and then we moved to how do you actually observe and hold your moral pain for what it is? How do you hold shame? And he used to be a ballroom dancer. So so he generated the metaphor. We, we talked about, well, how, how could you kind of ballroom dance with your shame? How could you move with it in the service of what you care about, mm-hmm. but not let it completely move you, right? So So holding it, moving with it, doing a dance with his pain. 
And immediately after, that. that's thank so cool. You. Yeah, what a great Immedi- metaphor. Immediately after sharing that, he was like, "Oh man, I should not have shared that with you. You are going to now <laughs> like use this throughout treatment too much." No, but it was. Um, I, I think it was a really nice way of like, how do you how do you hold pain for the sake of what matters? Which is, I, I think, really what the core of of act for moral injury is. Um, he, I, I think another another big thing that we worked on. So um, moral pain, the way that Jake described it, um, it can sound kind of um, overly reductionistic. I think like our de- our group's definition of moral pain, mm-hmm. just like shame, guilt, these beliefs you have. Um, but but and I think that's actually very critical, so that we know that what we're working with, it's it's critical to kind of drill down to that level. But that's not what our minds do, right? Our minds generate these really complex relational networks um, that we call stories. In our, in our group, these stories about ourselves and other people that we become totally wrapped up in related to these morally injurious events and related to our attempts to um, kind of manage the shame and guilt and all of the painful experiences that we've had, we, we sort of, we kind of start spinning and, and create verbal rules and create stories around uh, how I am, how the world is to kind of protect ourselves. But then we get caught up in those and actually can't move towards what we care about. Um, so a big shift for him was really in learning to step back from these stories he had uh, related to his moral injury, learning to step outside of those so that he had the agency to to be able to kind of write new ones. So that mm-hmm. he had the agency to live his life. And in doing that, so it was really cool. We um, we initially did a valued living questionnaire to kind of assess like what was important to him and um, his behavior, you know, in the past week consistent with what was important to him. And he, we got to the spirituality um, item and he was like, spirituality is absolutely not important to me. I will not be pursuing that in therapy with you. Um, which, so to me, I was like, Ooh, like, this seems, is interesting. That seems like <laughs> gonna, a strong response. Circle this item. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It was a very strong response. And he um, had been raised uh, with a, with a very, strong set of um, kind of religious rules, I think, or, or at least what he interpreted as religious rules. And uh, that is what he believed spirituality to be. And it was cool because in the context of like moving towards accepting shame and accepting other facets of moral pain, he started spontaneously engaging in spirituality and then started labeling it as spirituality. So he's he's actually building new stories about what spirituality is in the context of this work, which was like, Whoa! I mean, that 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 was that was really where where things started to shift. He said, um, he said, uh, God, what did he say? He was like, you know, spirituality for me now is contributing to other people. And I think what's really interesting about that, right? So spirituality is con- connecting to something bigger than you. Um, it's reconnecting to the tribe. It's finding a tribe. So for him, mm-hmm. spirituality was engaging with people which um, I think speaks to what we we were talking about related to how shame functions. So he was noticing shame, but then engaging with with a community and reestablishing and connecting himself to a community, which was really huge. he demonstrated like and you can read the the paper to to kind of see more about this but he uh i think improved in his um value behavior like 40 points on the vlq it was like really dramatic the way that his life shifted because of really how he ran with this intervention and and ran with engaging in bold moves um which bold moves we describe as just um small kind of committed actions that are values consistent um and i and i think a big piece of bold moves is that to move boldly towards what you care about, you have to be willing to have the shame that comes with it. To say that I'm being spiritual means that I'm going to have shame while I'm engaging in spirituality, particularly for this this individual. Um, and I and I want to read a couple quotes from him if it's okay because Great. I think yes. he's awesome. I think these really highlight the impact of the intervention in a nice way, better than Jake and I I think can describe um, what we think our intervention does. Um, and and so so the service member said the intervention did not lessen the amount of pain that I feel. It did not make it so that I no longer feel pain for my morally injurious events. What it did, it made it so that I could connect better with that pain, so that I could interact with that pain with more responsibility. And it helped me to identify with areas that I connect to and be able to accept that in my life, I will always feel a lot of moral pain. And I'm still able to feel happiness and feel connected to other people. So this is not about not feeling pain for what you did. In fact, who are we to tell you you shouldn't feel pain for what you did? We weren't there. We are not moral authorities related to your experience. What this is about is willingness to to hold that pain and march towards what what matters to you. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I think, I think another, so kind of in line with that, I, I think something that was really nice, and this is the last quote I'll share, and you can, you can check out a bunch more in the case study. Um, he, so he had completed cognitive processing therapy, which takes a, a very different approach to um, moral emotions and cognitions. Um, and so in, I gave him um, a, 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 a measure of treatment acceptability that we use in our trials here called the Narrative Evaluation of Intervention Interview. Um, which allowed him to kind of just report on his experience. And, and so in one of the areas, um, he said, the biggest difference between ACT for moral injury and cognitive processing therapy is that ACT is focused specifically on the idea that I need to accept what has happened and not so much try to reassign blame for it. With many other treatment modalities, it is focused on aiding victims and survivors to reassign blame and guilt for what they had been through. In my situation, I had been unable to do so because the facts of the matter are that I bear full responsibility for the deaths of many people. This treatment was very effective in helping me to develop my values so that I can feel pain without being consumed by it and also focus on striving towards living up to my values and accept where I am now instead of comparing myself to where I was or where I want to be. So I, wow. <laughs> yeah, let that land. <laughs> yeah, that's powerful. Yeah, I think what's like really, really key about that is is it's not about reassigning blame. It's about kind of cultivating and identifying what I'm experiencing and still moving towards what I what I care about. We're not trying to to make you not believe that that you you know didn't do something wrong, didn't yeah. do something inconsistent with your values. And to really reiterate Lauren's point, um, uh, one thing we stress really heavily that we are not moral authorities, and sometimes when we don't think about the ethical implications of when we tell a client that their guilt or shame is inappropriate or yeah. that oh uh, like you shouldn't feel yeah. guilty yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Like, don't worry about so, it so going back to that is uh, dichotomy you know we can tell them the, we, we could be authorities on what facts are right we, we can look at statistics um, and, and we can authoritatively state right what the degree of danger is for a situation but there is nothing in those three letters after our name that allow us to um, authoritatively state what is right or wrong. No. Right. And, and that's kind of snuck under the radar in some of our professional um, clinical wisdom that somehow we can say, well, clearly that's you know wrong that they should be feeling yeah. shame or not shame. We try to come at that with a much more egalitarian, um, kind of sensitive to diversity perspective that there's different worldviews about what constitutes right and wrong. And that um, you don't necessarily have to adopt my my particular views in order to move forward with your life. Oh, yes, that's great. No, really, it's like you're not. There is no right answer to some of this stuff. Or if there is, I don't have it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not the person. You're to be not the, the expert. I'm not the, yeah, I'm not yeah. the judge on that. I'm not. I'm not a moral expert. Now we would say that we are maybe moral guides. That we can say we have seen a lot of people travel this road, and if you tell us where you want to go, we might be able to help you get there. Right. So we certainly we can't ignore the fact that we have my like, kind of moral weight and kind of a role to play in their recovery in for moral injury. But that's not the same as being the authority that tells them right. where they should go and what's right or wrong for them to do. No. That's, right. not, that's not our place. You're the expert on you. You get to decide what your values are. I'm not going to tell you that you should value X, Y and Z. That's for you to decide and figure out throughout our work together. Yeah. Yeah. So this approach that you're doing is acceptance and commitment therapy based. And I think you alluded to this yeah. with the case, but how is it different from other approaches? And yeah. why might this be helpful? Yeah, so I, I think that's a great question. Um, and one we've we've thought a lot about. I think, um, I think the main point here is that we don't pathologize morality. We don't pathologize moral emotions or cognitions. We don't try to reduce guilt or shame that someone experiences. It, it is not about that at all. It is about cultivating willingness to experience those emotions for the sake of what matters to you. Cultivating willingness to kind of step outside of a thought or step outside of a story, right? Not trying to change what that belief is or what that thought is. Um, and, and very consistent with an ACT model, kind of the more efforts uh, that you sort of devote towards trying to change the content of an experience, the bigger that experience can actually get and the more complex that network can actually get. Um, so so we, we very much... Um, uh, kind of believe in that 
that perspective. I, I think the other thing that um, kind of goes alongside that, and it, this is certainly consistent with other approaches to contextual behaviorism, um, is we're really focused on the function of the behavior that's happening right now. Why, why is this behavior maintained for this person? Why is it that when we talk about this thing, they change the subject or they turn around and try and, and physically avoid um, you know, something that evokes shame for them, right? So, so we would be generating some hypotheses about, about what it is that they're doing. They're um, trying to avoid, we would imagine, their experiences that are aversive. Um, and, and from that kind of information in the moment, that sort of mini functional analysis, then we, we generate interventional strategies that are, um, that are kind of based on approaching experiences. And I think a piece that we actually haven't touched on yet um, that's really important is our intervention is group-based. No, no. um, and, and the reason that it's group-based is because we believe that that provides people kind of maximal opportunities for new learning related to moral emotions and, and cognitions and related to engaging with their values. Because if they're in a room full of other veterans who have experienced morally injurious events and are, and are struggling with moral injury in relation to how they're managing guilt and shame, they're going to learn a lot more than, than they will probably just from, you know, the, the two of us. And, and certainly that isn't to say that this intervention isn't effective individually. The case example I just described uh, was an individual application. Mm-hmm. Um, but we believe that putting people in a social context uh, actually kind of maximizes our, our potential for, for helping them interact flexibly with moral pain, flexibly with guilt and shame. I mean, it's a huge exposure therapy just to be talking about this in around other people totally yeah yeah and and, and also there's something about your ability to see someone else struggling with a similar issue because oftentimes um the people in our group will have so much more empathy for each other than they do for themselves of course right right? um you know i'm i'm the worst person in this room syndrome right um and and that can be really helpful when they all say that (laughs) in turn you know they realize like wait a minute we all think this yeah i'm not the only one yeah yeah so there's so again it's really interesting like um, another function of pain that we haven't talked about uh, yet is that it really actually bonds us together. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. think about the people, you know, you maybe you went to grad school with or um, people that you've like been in the trenches with and suffered through. You know, you might not have picked those people as your best <laughs> friends, right? But just by virtue of your shared suffering together, you develop a bond. Yeah. Right. So, so there's something about, and um, Sebastian Younger is a, uh, yeah. a journalist who wrote a book called Tribe which is all about how um, adversity kind of binds people together, which is an excellent, excellent book. Um, and so there, there's something about pain that is really valuable um, for us. And it's even a gift if, if we can allow it to be, right? If we can relate to it in that way. Um, I think one point I would add to the case study that Lauren brought up was about the spirituality and religiosity piece. Um, just like uh, Morality is a topic that we as psychologists don't really get a lot of training in. Yeah. We get ethics training, but that's like how to not lose your license. Like that's right. not the, that's not the same. That's for us to behave well, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, that's not yeah. the same as like how do you deal with someone who's going through a, you know a moral injury. Um, we also don't get a ton of training in spirituality and religiosity in terms of our diversity coursework. Um, and so, um, and with people with uh, moral injury, um, th- those are often things that are impacted and. Um, it's hard uh, to to approach that to say, well, you know, help me understand about your religious values because sometimes those things were the things that were wounded, like those were the things that were kind of broken or violated. And so, like um, Lauren's client, oftentimes veterans or, or clients with moral injury are in kind of a deep place of what's called spiritual struggle, right? And and they don't know really what to make of it. So we have this dual problem as providers. On one hand, we have to be able to kind of um, competently approach spirituality as an area of diversity and also do that when someone is in the midst of a struggle with that area, right? Mm-hmm. So um, to kind of know how to hold that while they don't really know what they're even holding themselves. Um, and so for that reason, you would imagine, and you'd be right, that a lot of um, chaplaincy has been very interested in the topic of moral injury as well. And I think one of the things that we really like about our intervention is that someday, maybe in the future, we think that there is a, a good... Um, ability to kind of have a more spiritually integrated approach or to even have um, some role of chaplaincy in delivering the intervention at some point. Um, Because we think that morality and spirituality are so just deeply connected that in order to do a good job, we're going to need to be able to approach both. And there's some opportunity to do some really deep work there, bringing those two together. I think um, one more thing related to kind of the distinction between ACT and maybe other approaches 
to trauma or moral injury um, is uh, well, and I, I think this is also consistent with other approaches to trauma and moral injury, but maybe maybe something that we just really try to um, kind of engage in is, is, is in the context of figuring out how my behavior is functioning right now, then doing experiential exercises yes. that map on to how that's functioning right now. Like you said, those kind of mini emotional exposures, because then the, the goal isn't, you know, necessarily what you're doing in the room. It's to take it into your life in a meaningful way. Um, so we focus a lot on like, how are you going to engage in this bold move in your life while experiencing this shame and now let's do it let's try it the the outside of session stuff is actually um I, pretty significant i would i would say yeah they're kind of like moral injury kind of like values and devos yeah kind values of, and devos. Like, like we go and do this thing right that is hard for you because it's in line with your values yeah yeah that's where the action happens yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate the work you guys are doing. I've learned so much from you, and I think it's it makes me realize that there are times when this really needs to be brought into therapy, yeah. and we might overlook it. Yeah. Because people aren't talking about it. We might not be picking up on it. Everybody's uncomfortable about it. So I think it's just really helpful. And and definitely, like, stay tuned from us. So I, I don't think I've... I think I've alluded to this earlier, but um, one of the things that Jake and I are working on right now with the rest of our team members um, is a three-year acceptability and feasibility study. So we're looking at, um, do veterans find ACT for moral injury to be acceptable? Um, also, do they find present-centered therapy for moral injury to be acceptable? So we developed... Um, we kind of developed a new application of present-centered therapy so that we can use that in a future efficacy trial. If we figure out, like, one... How do veterans kind of find this? And then the second piece of it is, is this actually feasible to implement in the VA? So that's that's what we're working on right now. And, and we'll know more in a couple of years. So it's well, exciting. Keep us posted. For sure. And for those who are interested in learning more, we will link to some resources on our show notes for today. Uh, any other resources you want folks to know about? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, I think we both have websites that, yeah. that provide lists of, of resources. So we'll, we'll provide links to both of those. Great. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I would, um, say, um, for those interested in military related moral injury, there's a couple good, um, documentaries that yeah. people could look at. So totally. Sebastian Younger, that's that journalist I mentioned before. He did, uh, two documentaries. Um, one is, uh, Restrepo and it's the really other, good. the other yeah. is Korengal. And so if, um, and of course we'll have webinars and stuff, but, but he, in that, um, those, uh, documentaries, he actually is embedded with, I think an airborne, um, uh, platoon that's kind of dropped off in the Korangal Valley in Afghanistan on a mountaintop behind enemy lines and kind of built, digs an outpost. And so it really, um, and there's a lot of footage and interviews with those service members. And, and even though they don't, it's not about moral injury, they don't talk about moral injury, um, it is. It's, it's, it's kind of woven <laughs> yeah. okay. throughout the interviews and their experiences. So if people are kind of interested in kind of getting a, and there's other great documentaries as well, that I'd be happy to, if people want to reach out to kind of put them in touch with. But those two, Restrepo and Korengal, are really excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you both so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This was great. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. Our website is www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com.